One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, the 1085th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday we got back in to a little geopolitics and today you might think that I want to talk about Hunter Biden, but I don't. Hunter Biden showed up for a congressional hearing today. It was a complete and total farce. It was as a television production on par with the sham J6 committee. Nancy Mace took about eight minutes to totally slam Hunter Biden. In relatively foolish and immature terms, strictly for the cameras, Hunter Biden then promptly got up and saw himself out. He was just like, "Okay, well, that's enough time in this congressional hearing, embarrassed all of these clowns in Congress. And then they just kept right on going, continuing their hearing. So all of that was utterly absurd tonight. For some reason, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are squaring off in a CNN debate from Iowa just ahead of the Iowa GOP caucus. And few things could be more retarded than the Hunter Biden hearing, but a Ron DeSantis-Nikki Haley debate on CNN, well, that fits the bill. To further emphasize how ridiculous it is to have a debate between two also-rans on CNN Ahead of a fake primary, Donald Trump simply decided that for all intents and purposes, he was simply going to cancel that debate. No one's going to watch it live. Some people might see some clips tonight or tomorrow. And that's mostly because 
Trump supporters will be making fun of both of them while their online supporters pretend that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are actually just much more competent than Donald Trump. You thought Joe Biden was an opportunity to get the adults back in the room? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait till you find out how many adults will be back in the room. It's all of them. But the point is, if you want to live in an informational past and follow the exact details of complete and total political fictions, by all means, fully engage with the Hunter Biden hearing and by all means, fully engage with the fake debate for the fake primary while Donald Trump has a Sean Hannity town hall appearance to overshadow the whole thing. But we are not going to do that today. We are going to stick with geopolitics. And we will turn our attention today to the regime proxy state of Taiwan as they are about to have an election to decide their future this Saturday, January 13th. Now, because we haven't devoted much time, if at all, to Taiwan's election, I want to spend pretty much the entire episode on that and take a similar approach to the one I took yesterday to the curious case of the disappearing SECDEF and what exactly is happening in Iran. But let's quickly touch on a couple other geopolitical stories before we get into the Taiwan election. And let's kick off with some funding problems for the United Nations. We're going to flash back just a little bit to June 21st, 2023. This is Reuters. UN chief deplores chronic underfunding of humanitarian aid. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres criticized on Wednesday what he called chronic underfunding of aid across the globe despite growing humanitarian needs. Chronic underfunding and record levels of humanitarian need are stretching the system to the breaking point, he told the humanitarian affairs segment of the UN Economic and Social Council. Only 20% of the funds needed under the UN Global Humanitarian Appeal have been received halfway through 2023, he said. This is causing a crisis within a crisis, Guterres added. Without a solution to the funding crisis, further cuts are inevitable. Sounds like a polycrisis. On Monday, international donors pledged close to $1.5 billion in aid to Sudan, which has been stricken by a grave humanitarian crisis that has driven some 2.2 million people from their homes. Oh, migration. Prior to the conference, a UN appeal for $2.57 billion for humanitarian support within Sudan this year was about 17% funded and an appeal for nearly $500 million for refugees fleeing the country was just 15% funded. So the UN didn't have enough money last June. But you can look at other instances of the UN claiming that it is underfunded. Here is the New York Times from December 2nd, 2021. Citing COVID-19 climate and wars, UN asks donors for big jump in funding. The world body said it needed $41 billion to fund humanitarian aid to help 183 million people in 63 countries. The first line of that article, when the United Nations made its last appeal for humanitarian aid funding before the pandemic, it asked donors for about $29 billion. But in the past year alone, there has been a huge jump in the number of people needing help. That's weird, isn't it? You would think that the UN, a global governing body whose agenda is coordinated with other global governing bodies, like, for instance, the World Economic Forum that has as its partners banks and transnational corporations, you would think that they would be able to have enough money to be able to do their little projects all over the world. But apparently not. Anyway, on Friday, January 5th, this headline ran in the Brussels Times. UN temporarily closes Geneva headquarters due to lack of funds. The United Nations European headquarters in Geneva, known as the Palace of Nations, will remain closed until 12 January due to a liquidity crisis within the organization. The decision has been taken to economize heating, electricity, and maintenance costs. Surging energy prices have strained the UN's budget, necessitating the palace's closure from 20 December to 12 January. 
This news was confirmed on Friday by UN spokesperson Alessandra Volucci, according to Swiss radio station SRF. Swiss broadcaster RTS has previously hinted at a temporary closure until 7 January. So again, it's global regime energy policy that has made energy prices surge and soar. And that is what is making it difficult for the United Nations in Geneva, the palace of nations, to keep the lights on. However, the organization continues to function with employees working remotely. Staff members essential to on-site operations retain access to the building. One of the wings will reopen for upcoming conferences. The UN is grappling with cash flow problems caused in part by around 50 countries failing to fulfill their contribution payments, including the United States. Wait, what? Why isn't the fake president paying up to the UN? Don't these people literally have access to all the money in the world? How is it possible? Constructed between 1929 and 1936, the Palace of Nations has served as the UN's European base since 1966. Located in a prestigious park in Geneva, it houses numerous global governing bodies focusing on fields such as human rights, humanitarian aid, disarmament, economics, development, science, and technology. It's so great that they got it finished in 1936, right before they needed it to orchestrate World War II. I mean, they're the ones who have kept the world at peace since then, right? And let's jump from Switzerland to the country everyone mistakes for Switzerland, Sweden. This is from the Daily Mail this morning, but this was kind of going around a few days ago, too, in other outlets. Sweden is warned to brace for war. Civil defense minister tells citizens to get moving and prepare for the end of 210 years of peace as country bids to join NATO in the face of Russia tensions. You got that? So NATO is expanding and putting Sweden, a country who has been at peace for 210 years, in a precarious position at threat of war. Sweden's civil defense minister has warned his country could soon face the prospect of war and urged citizens to join voluntary defense organizations in preparation for a potential armed conflict. In a rousing speech that took note of his country's hotly anticipated accession to NATO this year and ongoing Russian aggression in Ukraine, Karl Oskar Bolin called on ordinary citizens to ask themselves, who are you if war comes? Speaking at Sweden's annual Society and Defense Conference in Salin this past weekend, the minister said it is human to want to view life as you wish it was rather than it actually is. For a nation for whom peace has been a pleasant companion for almost 210 years, the idea that it is an immovable constant is conveniently close at hand. But taking comfort in this conclusion has become more dangerous than it has been for a very long time. There could be war in Sweden. The world is facing a security outlook with greater risks than at any time since the end of the Second World War. The civil defense minister continued. Are you a private individual? Have you considered whether you have time to join a voluntary defense organization? If not, get moving, he declared. Bolin did not claim that the prospect of war is imminent in Sweden in his weekend speech, but he stressed the current state of the world and rising tensions between East and West necessitated a response at all levels to ensure Swedish society would be prepared for any future conflict. So that's reassuring, right? A war in Ukraine breaks out because of NATO expansion and NATO provocation. And so NATO then thinks it's a good idea to expand into Sweden and further provoke Russia. So now the Swedes, for the first time in 210 years, might find themselves at war. Now, do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't. Am I glad that the Swedish people are getting this message? Yes, I am. This is what the future looks like if the global regime is allowed to have its way, period. So let's move to Taiwan. 
And before we get started on Taiwan, let's review a few key concepts in my theoretical worldview that make my viewpoint and perspective different to what you will find elsewhere. First, of course, we have the concepts of good twin versus evil twin, the evil twin being the global regime, the centralizing force trying to create a one world international rules based liberal world order. As they often describe it, sometimes it's described as the new world order. This is just a one world government. There are no borders. There is a centralized governing body like the U.N. or like the World Economic Forum, and they make the decisions for everyone all around the world, and they call it democracy. In opposition to that, we have what I call the good twin, which is the decentralizing force that values sovereign nations as a way to preserve the liberty of sovereign individuals. And there are leaders around the world who seem to align with the goals of sovereign independence for their nation. It is clear, for instance, that the Uniparty in America is operating at the service of that global regime, pushing forward the agenda that brings us to that one world international rules-based liberal world order. While we have people like Donald Trump saying, make America great again and America first, the agenda that preserves American sovereignty and the sovereignty of and for the American people. I say quite often that everything is two things or everything is at least two things. Everything for certain is at least these two things, either a centralizing force or a decentralizing force. We have to keep that in mind. Traditional geopolitical analysis will talk about what the United States is doing or what Russia is doing or China or Saudi Arabia. The good twin evil twin lens allows us to go beyond that and understand who is in control in each one of those nations. Are the controlling powers representative of that centralizing one world force or the decentralizing sovereign forces? This is especially important now as well, more than half of the world in terms of population, and certainly way more than half in terms of land mass, is already moving into that multipolar world order. That is inevitable. Any analysis that pretends that's not happening is absurd to the point of being basically worthless in the same way that any bit of American political analysis that ignores the fact there's no way Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes and well more than half the country knows that is also absurd and worthless. So that's the first thing. Now, in terms of the second thing, many of you know that I, as a member of Badlands Media, ascribe in some large sense to John Harold Patel Patriot's theory of devolution. And my approach to devolution is as follows. I have discussed this many times at length with John on live streams, so I'm not saying anything that he isn't aware of. My view is that Donald Trump as president of the United States of America and commander in chief of our armed forces in 2020 monitored and was well aware of election fraud that took place in our elections. There is absolutely no chance that Donald Trump does not know the truth about the 2020 elections. And he has relayed that truth to the American people many, many times. That being true, there is absolutely no way that Donald Trump simply walked away and left the United States of America in the hands of usurpers. Considering all the other anomalies that we see and discuss on a constant basis and knowing full well about the illegitimacy of Joe Biden, I believe it is a certainty that something else is happening behind the scenes that we can kind of see the shape of, but can't possibly expect to fully understand. So if it is not devolution in the way John describes, there is something like that going on. That is my position that I have communicated to him many times. And I believe that of the theories about what might be going on, devolution is the best argued and the best evidenced. We all understand that we are definitely going to get certain things wrong. 
But no matter what, it is a more productive and a more informative and a more accurate way to analyze what is going on right now, not only in American politics and American life, but in geopolitics and how we see the world. Now, part of the devolution discussion is occasionally about the emergence of this multipolar world order, and we often talk about devolution worldwide. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's a bit of a misnomer, but we kind of use that as a shortcut to describe something similar to what's happening in America, happening in other places around the world. Now, this is something I've been talking about for years as an ancillary discussion to the good twin versus evil twin view of things. We have this global regime that is in some way a descendant of the Prussian Empire which itself is a descendant of other world-dominating forces, governments, kingdoms, organizations, armies, etc. Powers that have tried to dominate the world and its people for centuries or millennia. I would highly, as I often do, recommend prussiagate.substack.com if you want to understand the Prussian Empire and their influence on the world as it exists today. The Prussiagate authors argue that the invisible enemy, as Donald Trump describes them, is in fact this Prussian army that controls nations and has infiltrated into the nations of the world, essentially running and dominating things through an elaborate spy network that exerts its influence through the corruption and compromise of people of wealth and status and power. In my view, that maps exactly onto the world we see to the point where disputing it actually seems silly, despite the fact that someone who has never heard of these ideas would think immediately, oh, well, that sounds crazy. That is not something that could happen. Well, actually, it is something that could happen. And to understand that, you just have to look at the people who are in control right now. They are ideological and bloodline descendants of the same people who were in control and running the same project a hundred years ago in Europe. Look into Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum's father. Christia Freeland is the deputy prime minister of Canada. Her grandfather was a Nazi propagandist. Justin Trudeau is, in fact, the bastard son of Fidel Castro. These things are not accidents. This is how the world works. Now, devolution worldwide might be shorthand. The way I have described it many times is this same playbook, this regime playbook playing out in different locations all over the world on slightly different timelines. And the playbook is run in a cyclical fashion. They will destroy society, profit off the rebuilding, further infiltrate governments, and then lead the society right back into ruin so the process can repeat. And of course, those people in power are never the ones affected. They take all the money and all the labor, all the energy from the people to the point where their very survival, their very way of life is threatened. And then they will gradually ease the suffering of those people to the degree that those people support the further empowerment of the regime in a given nation. I have highlighted this phenomenon many times over the last three and a half years I've been doing this podcast. We have talked about too many nations around the world to even count. So let's look at Taiwan and their upcoming election and try to understand it through these lenses, through the good twin, evil twin lens, and through this idea of the cyclical repetition of the global regime's plan. Or we can use the shorthand and say devolution worldwide, though, again, in these other countries, it's not, quote unquote, devolution, at least not in the particulars. So let's begin with a flashback to February 2014. You might be familiar with the professor John Mearsheimer from his work concerning Russia and Ukraine. He kind of entered the public spotlight in early 2022 based on his assessment of the situation in Ukraine. Wikipedia describes him this way, an American political scientist and international relations scholar who belongs to the realist school of thought. He is a professor at the University of Chicago and has been described 
according to the publication International Relations, as the most influential realist of his generation. The Wikipedia entry says Mearsheimer is best known for developing the theory of offensive realism, which describes the interaction between great powers as being primarily driven by the rational desire to achieve regional hegemony in an anarchic international system. In accordance with his theory, Mearsheimer believes that China's growing power will likely bring it into conflict with the United States. Now, that is pretty much taken as a given by most people in the geopolitical sphere. It is not only the theory of the case, it is also a strategy that has been pursued. And people often talk about that in the context of the Thucydides trap. The idea put forward by Graham Allison that when one great power is rising and another is falling, the likely outcome will be war. Or we could restate that with the softer term conflict. So Mearsheimer in the publication, The National Interest, February 25th, 2014, writes a seminal article called Say Goodbye to Taiwan. And it's quite long, but I want to at least relay how he sets up the situation. What are the implications for Taiwan of China's continued rise? Not today, not next year. No, the real dilemma Taiwan will confront looms in the decades ahead when China, whose continued economic growth seems likely, although not a sure thing, is far more powerful than it is today. Contemporary China does not pose significant military power. This is 10 years ago, remember. Its military forces are inferior and not by a small margin to those of the United States. Beijing would be making a huge mistake to pick a fight with the American military nowadays. China, in other words, is constrained by the present global balance of power, which is clearly stacked in America's favor. And again, 10 years ago, this was a much different situation. The balance of power has shifted and is in no way clearly stacked in America's favor at this moment. But back to Mearsheimer, who addresses this immediately. But power is rarely static. The real question that is often overlooked is what happens in a future world in which the balance of power has shifted sharply against Taiwan and the United States in which China controls much more relative power than it does today, and in which China is in roughly the same economic and military league as the United States. In essence, a world in which China is much less constrained than it is today. That world may seem forbidding, even ominous, but it is one that may be coming. And it is important to note that it is the globalists here in the United States over the last 35 years, particularly, who have created and profited from China's rise. Mearsheimer writes, It is my firm conviction that the continuing rise of China will have huge consequences for Taiwan, almost all of which will be bad. Not only will China be much more powerful than it is today, but it will also remain deeply committed to making Taiwan part of China. Moreover, China will try to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere which means it will seek to reduce, if not eliminate, the American military presence in Asia. The United States, of course, will resist mightily and go to great lengths to contain China's growing power. The ensuing security competition will not be good for Taiwan, no matter how it turns out in the end. Time is not on Taiwan's side. Herewith, a guide to what is likely to ensue between the United States, China, and Taiwan. In an ideal world, most Taiwanese would like their country to gain de jure independence and become a legitimate sovereign state in the international system. This outcome is especially attractive because a strong Taiwanese identity, separate from a Chinese identity, has blossomed in Taiwan over the past 65 years. Many of those people who identify themselves as Taiwanese would like their own nation state and they have little interest in being a province of mainland China. And we can see in our own country and our own experience examples similar to this. Hawaiians still maintain a Hawaiian identity that exists outside of the idea that Hawaii is part of the United States. According to National Chang-Chi University's Election Study Center in 1992, 17.6% of the people living in Taiwan identified as Taiwanese only. By June 2013, that number was 57.5%, a clear majority. 
only 3.6 of those surveyed identified as Chinese only. Furthermore, the 2011 Taiwan National Security Survey found that if one assumes China would not attack Taiwan if it declared its independence, 80.2% of Taiwanese would in fact opt for independence. Another recent poll found that about 80% of Taiwanese view Taiwan and China as different countries. Now, perhaps to Mearsheimer, this isn't totally relevant as a realist. Things just are the way they are, assuming the polls are true. But you might wonder if that change in self-identity has something to do with Western influence and propaganda. Back to the article. However, Taiwan is not going to gain formal independence in the foreseeable future, mainly because China would not tolerate that outcome. In fact, China has made it clear that it would go to war against Taiwan if the island declares its independence. The anti-secession law, which China passed in 2005, says explicitly that, quote, the state shall employ non-peaceful means and other necessary measures, end quote, if Taiwan moves toward de jure independence. It is also worth noting that the United States does not recognize Taiwan as a sovereign country. And according to President Obama, Washington, quote, fully supports a one China policy. I've talked about this at length many times. We keep hearing about how China is going to invade Taiwan. That would be akin to California being captured by the global communist regime and then the United States of America invading California. That's not what it would be. It would be the United States of America going into California and kicking out all of that infiltration from the global regime. And that is indeed what is happening in Taiwan. It's just like what happened in Ukraine. And we're going to see it in other places around the globe. As we talked about yesterday, that seems to be what's happening in Iran as well. It is also, it seems, what is happening in Guyana relative to Venezuela. These large countries around the world are ceasing to recognize the maps drawn by global governing bodies in the aftermath of World War II. They are clawing back what was taken from them and unwinding the influence of this corrupt and corrupting global regime. Back to the article. Thus, the best situation Taiwan can hope for in the foreseeable future is maintenance of the status quo, which means de facto independence. And to be clear, the difference between de facto and de jure, de facto means what is happening in reality, what's happening in practice, and de jure means this is what is actually legal. This is what is written into law. But the thing is, the law is an abstraction. Laws are written by men. They must be enforced by men. And if the enforcement mechanism is disrespected or non-existent or not strong enough, then the law is essentially null and void. This kind of runs alongside the idea that to govern legitimately, you must have the consent of the governed. Let's continue. In fact, over 90% of the Taiwanese surveyed this past June by the Election Study Center favored maintaining the status quo indefinitely or until some later date. And when you hear names like Election Study Center, you should know immediately these are globalists creating public sentiment by reflecting to people what all the people think, even though that's not what they think. The worst possible outcome is unification with China under terms dictated by Beijing. Of course, unification could happen in a variety of ways, some of which are better than others. Probably the least bad outcome would be one in which Taiwan ended up with considerable autonomy, much like Hong Kong enjoys today. And again, this is 10 years ago. Hong Kong is not in that situation any longer. Chinese leaders refer to this solution as one country, two systems. Still, it has little appeal to most Taiwanese. As Yuan Kong Wang reports, an overwhelming majority of Taiwan's public opposes unification, even under favorable circumstances. If anything, longitudinal data reveal a decline in public support of unification. In short, for Taiwan, de facto independence is much preferable to becoming part of China, regardless of what the final political arrangements look like. The critical question for Taiwan, however, is whether it can avoid unification and maintain de facto independence 
in the face of a rising China. Now, it may be worth considering how it would be presented to the American public and to the world in 2015 or 2016 when we were being told there was no way America could ever support Donald Trump and certainly not a majority of Americans. We were told through all the surveys that we wanted a certain thing. And here we are nearly nine years later understanding that those polls weren't accurate at all, and they were a product of mass media manipulation and societal manipulation and brainwashing. And now that all of that is gone, the American people clearly are expressing in numerous ways, both in polls and in observable empirical reality, that we believe something entirely different than what was depicted by the media in relation to Donald Trump or to the America First movement back in 2015 and 2016. We have seen how polls are used. We have seen how the questions and the answers and the statistics are all manipulated. There is no way that any global regime aligned group doing a poll is going to produce results that conflict with the global regime's overall agenda. Now, two and a half years later, in the same publication, nationalinterest.org, Gordon Chang published a response to Mearsheimer. This article entitled Say Hello to Taiwan. So Mearsheimer says goodbye. Gordon Chang says hello. And in Chang's article, he writes, fortunately for the 24 million people living in Taiwan, almost everything Mearsheimer thinks about the island's future is wrong. Mearsheimer gets one thing right, however. The People's Republic of China will try to make Taiwan its 34th province. Mearsheimer relies on standard realist theory to explain Taiwan's predicament. Quote, the only way to predict how a rising China is likely to behave toward its neighbors, as well as the United States, is with a theory of great power politics, he writes. Applying this theory, he tells us there are two logics, China's nationalism and the country's imperative to security. Both logics, he continues, lead to the same endgame, the unification of China and Taiwan. Mearsheimer believes the United States, working to prevent China from dominating its periphery, will at first try to make Taiwan a part of its anti-China balancing coalition. Eventually, however, Washington will decide to let go of Taiwan because the prize is more important to the Chinese than to the Americans. From there, it is all downhill for Taipei. Now, from my perspective, and we do have seven years of hindsight here, Mearsheimer is obviously right and Gordon Chang is obviously wrong with what Chang has just presented. Of course, that's not all of his argument, but that stuff seems to have come up incorrect. There is an elegant logic to Mearsheimer's argument, even if it comes off as deterministic at times, but there are two main reasons why Taiwan will prove to be far more resilient than he thinks. First, China during the coming decades will not resemble the country that inhabits Mearsheimer's imagination. Second, even if China becomes the dominant regional power, as he believes, its neighbors will block it from taking over East Asia. Mearsheimer, perhaps the leading realist thinker today, isn't all that realistic about Taiwan's future. And Gordon Chang might still make this same argument today. I personally don't see it. At the core of say goodbye to Taiwan is the assumption that China will continue its extraordinary rise. But will it? In 2014, when the piece appeared, Mearsheimer's prediction appeared sound. Today, it does not. China's economy is sputtering. Beijing has given up on reform. Instead, it is moving to close off the country's markets, targeting multinationals and recombining already monopolistic state enterprises. At the same time, Chinese technocrats have reacted to a slowdown in growth by piling on debt at alarming rates. The rapid buildup, debt is growing at least four times faster than gross domestic product, has enlarged underlying imbalances in the economy and postponed a natural downward adjustment, making the crash, when it comes, far more severe than it ever had to be. Even People's Daily, the ruling elite's mouthpiece, appears anxious. In May, a front-page feature warned about a systemic financial crisis. And while this is occurring, the country's political system is fracturing, its social fabric fraying, its environment deteriorating, its people emigrating, its demography beginning a century-long decline. 
China is held together only through the Communist Party's increasingly coercive governance, unsustainable in a fast modernizing society. China has hit the ceiling, is how Garrett Vanderweiss, former editor of Taiwan Communique, characterizes the situation across the Taiwan Strait. China, unfortunately for the party, has not passed just an inflection point, but also the point of no return. A prolonged period of regressive moves on almost all fronts well into the second decade indicates there are no solutions possible within the context of a political system that leaders will not change. So this is some of the background. And both of them seem correct in certain ways. Gordon Chang is correct in his assessment that China's power did not increase at the same rate. But this looks a bit different when you view it through the good twin, evil twin lens. Now, it's impossible to know for certain what's going on in other countries because we are constantly propagandized. They are constantly propagandized and they also put out propaganda to the rest of the world. So it's very difficult to take any assessment by virtually anyone as being 100% true and accurate. But what we can do is look to see which forces seem to be moving in which direction. Are they moving toward that centralization or toward that decentralization? Are they embracing the multipolar world order and hoping to lead it? Or are they leading their country to be further enmeshed with that global regime agenda? Now, China as a one-party state for a very long time means that everyone at any level of power is going to be a member currently or at some time of the Chinese Communist Party. A parallel would be here in America, nearly every politician we can think of is a member of America's Uniparty, which is the equivalent of the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, they are business partners. The Uniparty here and the CCP are essentially the same thing, both pursuing the same global agenda on behalf of that global regime. And they may still want to be top dog within that order, but the point is that by and large, they are pursuing the same things together. Now, in the process of taking that all apart and dismantling the global regime's control within a given country, you would naturally expect to see people who are members of that centralizing regime oriented party, the Uniparty here, the CCP in China, moving away from that prior affiliation and taking on a new role entirely as one of the leaders in the now decentralizing force. And I believe as we watch reality emerge over the next few years, we may come to see Xi Jinping that way. He has done a lot to prosecute corruption in China, for instance, by powerful members of the CCP. We understand that here in America, Donald Trump's goal is to drain the swamp and remove the deep state, the corrupt administrative state. But the job is not finished. The uniparty faction in America is not gone. And Trump still has to be in mid-negotiation with that uniparty faction. They are still a player on the board that must be dealt with. But it's important to understand that just because someone was associated with the uniparty does not make them a lifelong enemy. Now, there's a strong likelihood, no doubt, but I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned whether or not a person and that person's affiliated groups or organizations or government or whatever is part of that centralizing force or part of that decentralizing force. Evil twin, good twin. And that is proven out by their actions, their goals, their motivations, not at least not primarily from their associations past or present. Now, in between the writing of John Mearsheimer's article and Gordon Chang's article, Taiwan was forced to endure something called the Sunflower Movement or the Sunflower Revolution. Ian Rowan in the Journal of Asian Studies writes this in February 2015. Inside Taiwan's Sunflower Movement, 24 days in a student-occupied parliament and the future of the region. And I'm just going to touch on the beginning of this here. Say goodbye to Taiwan, wrote political scientist John Mearsheimer in a widely read article in the March-April 2014 issue of The National Interest. Threatened by China's rising economic might and abandoned by a weakening United States, one of Asia's most vibrant democracies was facing, in his realist analysis, an almost inevitable annexation via economic, if not military, force. Time, he wrote, is running out 
for the little island coveted by its gigantic growing neighbor. But only days after publication on March 18th, activists and armchair analysts alike said hello to a new reality. That evening, the assembly hall of Taiwan's legislative yuan was stormed by a motley crew led by students from the, quote, Black Island Nation Youth, end quote. A loosely organized student political action committee formed the previous year. The several hundred occupiers repelled police efforts to eject them, escorted out the few officers on duty, and barricaded the doors with seats tied together with rope. None of them expected that the occupation, later known as the 318 or Sunflower Movement, would last 24 days, spawn the biggest pro-democracy protest rally in the island's history, reframe popular discourse about Taiwan's political and social trajectory, precipitate the midterm electoral defeat of the ruling party, and prefigure unprecedented protest in nearby Hong Kong. Now that, my friends, is a color revolution. That sounds like a very violent insurrection, or at least it would be communicated that way here by the Uniparty if the narrative called for the roles to be reversed. So let's focus in a little bit more on the Sunflower Movement. This is from the Carnegie Endowment. It's always good to get the full-on global regime interpretation. This is from August 2nd, 2018 by Ming Shou Ho. The headline, The Activist Legacy of Taiwan's Sunflower Movement. Like Hong Kong, South Korea, and elsewhere, Taiwan has been jolted by massive protests and a bout of renewed citizen activism in recent years. In March 2014, young protesters upended the island's political landscape by temporarily seizing control of the national legislature. Their activist opposition to a pending free trade agreement with China attracted broad public attention and support, helped prompt a change in government in early 2016, and unleashed a wave of young activism that continues to reshape Taiwanese politics. What does that sound like? Sounds like BLM. Crucially, many youthful protesters of the Sunflower Movement have remained energetically committed to several avenues of political action since 2014. Participants have driven new forms of protest and activism, played meaningful roles in both new and existing parties, and encouraged the government to reassess key policy issues, including nuclear power and education. Taiwan provides a model of how activists can sometimes transition from extra institutional protests to conventional forms of political participation. Do you think that the Carnegie Endowment or any aspect of the global regime's state propaganda media would ever describe those activities that way if they were done by MAGA or any other decentralizing force? Aiming for sovereign nations and sovereign citizens, there is absolutely no way. Now, keep how the media here described the Black Lives Matter Antifa movement while you think about this sunflower movement. The sunflower movement set off a political tidal wave. Beginning in mid-March, hundreds of student protesters physically occupied Taiwan's national legislature for roughly three weeks to oppose a proposed free trade agreement with China. Student leaders' nimble protest tactics and commitment to nonviolence and civic mindedness helped the ensuing large scale civic movement win mass support. And you might remember that Black Lives Matter Antifa was similarly nonviolent. They held a series of mostly peaceful protests. Sure, there was assault and sexual assault and murder and theft and arson. The looting of stores, the attacking of police officers, the shutting down of highways and major thoroughfares. But it's not necessary to mention any of that when we know that despite that, they were still mostly peaceful protests. A late 2014 poll indicated that more than half of Taiwanese respondents, 53.3%, supported the movement, just like everybody used to support Black Lives Matter, according to polls. Despite the efforts of then-President Ma Yingzhu and the 
Kuomintang ruling party, the Sunflower Movement helped encourage public scrutiny of closer economic integration with China, hamstring the trade proposal, and stymie subsequent efforts to liberalize trade with Beijing. The January 2016 election eventually ushered in even greater political change. President Tsai Ing-wen and the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, Taiwan's independence-leaning, longtime opposition force, wrested power from the KMT and gained control of the legislature. So the Sunflower Movement, the Sunflower Revolution, this color revolution in Taiwan in 2014, while they were doing the same thing in Ukraine, literally the same thing in Ukraine, the Maidan Revolution in 2014, same time, that is what brought in the Democratic Progressive Party, Taiwan's independence-leaning longtime opposition force, and with it, President Tsai Ing-wen. But even before the January 2016 election, the Sunflower Movement gave way to an inspiring explosion of enthusiastic activism. Amid this political renewal, Sunflower Movement participants formed a number of new organizations that similarly emphasized direct democracy, social justice, and Taiwanese identity. Now, I don't want to do a whole episode on the Sunflower Movement, so let's skip down to the conclusion here of this article by the Carnegie Endowment. The final section has the heading, Another Election Around the Corner. Taiwan's upcoming November 2018 local election will be a midterm test for Tsai's DPP government. Tsai and the ruling DPP are emphasizing their reform achievements related to pensions, welfare, the post-nuclear energy transition, transitional justice, and other issues, while the KMT is seeking to capitalize on Tsai's low approval ratings. Issues that are of central concern to sunflower activists, including same-sex marriage and labor rights, are not likely to be in the spotlight amid the crossfire between the mainstream parties. Isn't that amazing? This youthful protest movement ushered in a wave that brought this progressive government into power and not through election fraud. It can't be that. It's definitely whatever you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. But it's not through election fraud. For real, for real. This party did not get in through election fraud. And the president they brought in, yeah, he has low approval ratings, but it's not because the people never wanted that to begin with. Of course the people wanted it. Just look at this youthful protest movement that has overwhelming approval. The post-Sunflower Movement political evolution of Taiwan demonstrates that the gap between protest activism and electoral participation can be bridged. One major reason is that the country's democracy is still young, as its first presidential election took place in 1996. Past experience has shown that unpopular parties can be voted out of office. Taiwan previously underwent peaceful regime change twice prior to 2016 in 2000 and 2008. Taiwan's political future admittedly remains overshadowed by China's increasingly assertive territorial claims. Yet a consolidated Taiwanese identity and a mainstream Taiwanese preference to maintain its autonomy have emerged as points of overarching consensus. Now again, let's remember, it's official United States policy, even re-emphasized by none other than Barack Hussein Obama, that we have a one China policy. Taiwan is part of China. Taiwanese activists transition to party politics has been possible partly because the Sunflower Movement was driven by citizens yearning for genuine democracy, not by disillusionment or alienation. Although the initial 2014 protests were highly disruptive, the movement's core demands for procedural justice, transparency, and political accountability in cross-strait negotiations were moderate, not radical. The protesters aimed to change the minds of those in power when it turned out that obtaining electoral power was no more difficult than battling the police. Why would any of them bother to break the law? Taiwan's sunflower protesters smoothly transformed into professional politicians because democracy has been popularly accepted as the only game in town. And the Carnegie Endowment might as well say, oh, oh, yeah, we uh, 
we definitely took over the police and the police actually allowed them to take over the legislature. They would do anything for social justice. Okay, so there's our background. China, in quotes, wants to reunify with Taiwan, a territory that, according to official U.S. policy, is already part of China. They were moving that direction in 2014, and a communist protest movement called the Sunflower Movement, the Sunflower Revolution, there was a color revolution in Taiwan, and that helped usher in this new progressive government. The same playbook all around the world in different places on slightly different timelines. The motivating agenda is the same. The organizing forces are the same. The funding elements are always the same. And all of this is to promote the evil twin factions ascent into that global regime. This is how they destabilize, infiltrate, and take over countries. They have done this always. Now, I think I'm going to stop there. Tomorrow, I am traveling to Southern California for GART 3, the Great American Restoration Tour put on by Badlands Media. We will be having a bunch of great panel conversations. I assume I may see some of you there, so that will be lovely. I am going to go ahead and record a part two to this conversation that will be out tomorrow. Because I figure you got almost four hours of shows already in these first two days. We'll put out the hour-long episode today, and then we'll come back tomorrow for the rest, everything on this upcoming election. There will be no episode Friday. There will be no episode Monday. And then I will be back on Tuesday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. 
If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!